0: Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares.
1: We need to gratefully ponder God's borderless redemption. He's not localized in Israel. As a matter of fact, the whole tenor of where this is going in the book of Acts is to go to the Samaritans. We're going to see that in the next chapter. And then to the Italians, to the Romans, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. God's plan moving outward should make those on the outside who become insiders very, very grateful.
0: If you've been a Christian for a while, it may be difficult to remember that you used to be an outsider, someone far away from God. So today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares reminds us of God's far-reaching plan for salvation. I'm Dave Drouy. We're continuing a study in Acts chapter 7, verse 44, where Stephen confronts the Sanhedrin about their small domesticated view of God. But first, we'll look back at the construction of the temple under Solomon. Here's Pastor Mike with a message called The places of worship for Israel.
1: We need to let our understanding of God be so expansive and so big, so qualitatively better than anything that we might see here on earth, that our minds are constantly working at making this God, the real, perfect, and holy, most high God that He is. Hard for us to put that into words without using analogies, but it's helpful for us to think about the fact that we should ask the question: How big is our God? How? How high and lofty is my view of God? When Solomon, and it might be worth jotting down for your study this week, 1 Kings chapter 8 is when Solomon gets to doing all of the temple construction that David had set in his heart to do. Matter of fact, David had, had sequestered the materials and got everything together, and then Solomon has it built, and he has this uh, prayer of dedication. It might be worth looking at. Let's go there real quick. 1 Kings chapter 8. Drop, drop down to verse 12. Solomon is now... Thinking about the God that, frankly, I think by the first century and even by the fourth century BC, and I think every successive generation struggles with this, it, it had become much less than this. They could see, even as they did back in Samuel's day, that the Ark of the Covenant, this box in which the, the, the Ten Commandments were held, I mean, that's like our good luck terms. We got that, we got, we're okay. And, and the the Sanhedrin, the council could say, well, we, we're gatekeepers of this piece of real estate. We're okay. This is where God's favor is. And, and we're fine because we have it. And, and Solomon even, for all that he does later in life that we would raise our eyebrow at and, and, and even condemn as, as, as godless and him wandering away from the truth, we, we see him here with really good theology about what's going on in, in the temple. Look at verse 12. Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness. But he says here, verse 13, but I indeed have I've built, a, I've built you an exalted house. I mean, it's the best building that Israel had ever built, a place for you to dwell in forever. so see there, he did believe in a domesticated God. No, that, that's not true. As a matter of fact, Solomon says, I stood before the altar, verse 22, in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or in earth beneath, right? There's no one like you, uh, incomparable keeping covenant, you always are faithful to your promises, showing steadfast love, faithful love, you're loyal to what you say you're gonna do and to your people, to your servants who walk before you with all of their heart. And he goes on to talk about the promises that were kept to David, his father. Let's get down to the core of it, verse 27. He says, now listen, I built this house and he said earlier, you're gonna dwell in forever. Well, we know that can't mean that he thinks he's going to contain God in this back room. God will, will God indeed, he asks a rhetorical question, dwell on the earth? No, of course not. I think the Sanhedrin would probably say, well, we believe that too, but they weren't living like it. Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Right? How much less this house i built. That's the most majestic house ever built in Israel, but he's saying, I know you don't, you don't live here. You're not localized here. Yet, here's the whole point. Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. He's talking about himself in the third person. Oh Lord, my God, listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day. That your eyes be open Night and day toward this house, the place of which you've said my, here it is, this adjustment. my name shall be there. Right? This representation of God's greatness that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Right? And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. right? He knows where God is. And we're talking about some kind of, of presence of God. Cannot be localized, cannot be domesticated, can't put it, be put in the back room. And when you hear forgive, and he goes on to talk about that, we're, we're really looking to you knowing we've got a problem. We've got a problem. And this little manifestation of the glory of God in this room, you need to see it, it is bookended in biblical history between two eras, two epics, that are completely different than everything in between. The temple, as it's laid out here in the 14th century B.C., is 15th century, as Moses is coming out of Egypt, is some kind of symbolic representation of the glory of God, and it looks like something that we learned about in Genesis 1 and 2. A garden called Eden. What happens in the, in the garden when they're kicked out of the garden? What does God do? Think back, Sunday school grads. He puts some, uh, some sentries at the front, actually to the east, to the east opening of the garden so they wouldn't go back in. He puts two cherubim, remember that? And he, he has, gives them flaming swords so don't come back in. It is interesting, by the way, a lot of emphasis on the direction. The direction is east. They're kicked out to the east. Well, when God gives instructions to Moses to build this temple, he says, I want the opening to be coming in from the east. And I don't want you to see any longer these angels, at least in this symbolic representation, with flaming swords keeping you out. As a matter of fact, there are cherubim. Remember the cherubim that are crafted by gold on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? They're not looking out, guarding people. As a matter of fact, you remember the descriptions. They're turned inward toward the box. It's almost like at least an inferred invitation, like, yeah, come come on in. Well, that was done with a lot of ritual and a lot of shedding of blood. You couldn't even be in the room unless you were the high priest and only one day a year. But you had this symbolic reminder that the separations because of our sin, this darkness between Genesis 3 and Revelation 19, could be symbolically represented in this box, but it's only a reminder of this connection to a God and we can't wait to get to a place when the dwelling place of God is among men. That's why we constantly have been saying, right, from this pulpit, it is not about the here and now, it's about the then and there. A lot of good things about the Christian life, a lot to do, a lot of mission, a lot of stuff, but the ultimate reality is when, as Paul said, we no longer see dimly through this glass, this foggy picture, but when we see him, what, you know the phrase? Face to face, right? We can't wait for that. Everything about that temple is a reminder of the fact that there's a problem. Matter of fact, there's a bunch of veils, there's a bunch of curtains, there's a bunch of things that say keep out, and yet there's this sense of reminder that God wants to draw us in, and there's a sense of the reality of connection with God that we don't have, but we have in some mediatorial way through the priesthood. But the whole point is what was lost in paradise is going to be regained in the eternal state. Even this phrase, and I think we often misunderstand it, can go back to our, our passage in Acts chapter seven. He quotes Isaiah 66 here and he, he gives this weird phrase about the earth is my footstool. Here's a couple passages to write down that might be helpful regarding that, that phrase. The earth is my footstool. I don't know what you picture, you probably picture, if you try to envision this, which you shouldn't for very long, but you picture this this image in space and some gigantic body and a white robe and his feet are on this sphere of the planet. Is that what's, what you picture? Your brain is a Nerf ball, faster Mike. Well, listen, I just want you to not think in those general terms. The earth is my footstool. Jot these references down, three of them. Uh, Second Chronicles chapter 28, verse 2. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 2. When David's talking here about building the temple, he said, I had it in my heart to build the house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations for the building. He calls the building and the ark the footstool of God. Oh, it's on the earth, but... That's the footstool, right? It's it's like this connection to this transcendent God. It's like, here's a little touch of it. Here's his toes, if you will, as blasphemous as that may sound, on the top of the box. Here's another one, how about this? Psalm 132, Psalm 132 verse seven, talks about us going to the dwelling place of God that we might worship at his footstool. I might be in Galilee, I might be in the environs of, of Jerusalem, but I'm gonna go to the Temple Mount and I'm gonna worship at his footstool. So I'm just talking about that, not in general as the sphere of the planet on which we live, but specifically that place where we worshiped in the Old Testament. How about one more? Psalm 99, verse five. Exalt the Lord our God, and it says here, it's a call. Come and worship at his footstool, for holy is he. The contact of the transcendent God in the symbolic way in the temple. If nothing else, you see, it's a means to an end to have us look up and lift up and pray to and connect with God it's not ever an end in itself. And so often with any liturgical or any practice or any routine, even in the Christian life, we start to think it's about that. I went to church this week. I said my prayers. I had my quiet time. I went to my small group. And we can start to focus on that as an end in itself. The temple certainly should never have been viewed that way. The tabernacle should have never been viewed that way. It's like, it's like uh, being in a relationship, a long-distance relationship. I remember back in the day and, 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 and giving my, my girlfriend, now my wife, uh, like a calling card. It was just, I show how archaic I am, but let's pretend there were cell phones back then. And giving her a cell phone, saying, I want you to call me. Giving her, Sending her a picture and saying, here's my picture. I want you to think about me. I want you to call me. Well, I want all of those to be means to an end. I want her to relate to me, but all of those, do I w- want her to look at the picture? Of course I do, but I want her to see through that picture. I, do I want her to look at the phone and go, this is a great phone that he got me? Well, that's great. I want, I want her to appreciate the phone, but I want the phone to be a means of communication. This is not some kind of mystical connection with God through the temple, but it was something that certainly was to take the people's hearts to pray and to see the the barriers and the problems that sin had created and longing for and praying for the kind of reconciliation that God had promised that was coming ultimately in Christ and then completely in the new Jerusalem. So much more. We could obviously speak all day about the greatness of God's attributes, the transcendence of his majesty, the greatness of how he reflects that in his character, but I just want you to, to know our tendency to get back to domesticating, shrinking our view of God. Acts 7, verse 45, working our way backwards through this. I don't want to overstate what's being said here, but I at least want to observe in verses 45 through 47, this portable worship center before the construction of the temple by Solomon, it was, it was mobile. And, and there was something about that being the continual emphasis and theme of Stephen's speech, right? How often have we talked about that? that Ur of the Chaldeans and and Haran and and Egypt, and, and even when Abraham was going through as a sojourner, he didn't even own and possess a foot length of property, it said. So God is a God whose glory is showing up in Midian and in Sinai, and here they are in Jerusalem, very concerned about that piece of real estate, which they should have been, as it was rightly understood, a representation, a reminder, a symbolic channel through which, a means through which I connect with the transcendent God. But we see in a passage like this that it was outside of this piece of property and it was brought in at least to the, the place, the nation, well, Canaan, when the nations were dispossessed and Joshua brought it in and drove out those child-sacrificing cultures. And so it was until the day of David. And David found favor in the sight of God and asked for a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And it was Solomon who built the house for him. So that whole transitional, mobile, sojourning Representation, not only the representation, but the actual appearance of the glory of God that we've seen throughout this speech. I'd like to make this some kind of fuel for your time with God this week, but I, I want us to think about what that means for you and I as we sit on the other side of the planet as a bunch of Gentiles, I would assume most of us are, and we have no relational connection genealogically to Abraham. And we had no claim on the rights of the property in Israel, the access to the Temple Mount, the promises of all that God said about Abraham and the people of God and these are my people and all of those kinds of things. We were outside of all that. The us-them mentality was really clear and it became got to a place of a sinful kind of us-them mentality. But God recognized that there was, in the intention of the Abrahamic covenant as we started in our study, we saw was to, have Abraham and his descendants be a means through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just because they were good guys infiltrating the planet, but because through Abraham would come this one who would redeem them, be the ultimate high priest that would give everyone who would respond in repentance and faith as God called them to a place of dwelling with God. I just want us as Christians to be thankful for that, as Gentile Christians to be thankful for that. So jot it down that way if you would. Number two, we need to gratefully ponder I put it this way, God's borderless redemption. He's not localized in Israel. As a matter of fact, the whole tenor of where this is going in the book of Acts is to go to the Samaritans. We're gonna see that in the next chapter and then to the Italians, to the Romans in chapter 10. The continual concentric impact of the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, God's plan moving outward should make those on the outside who become insiders very, very grateful we should really be super grateful that we are now a part of something, the beneficiaries of the impact of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And of course, Stephen is about to die because he is being killed thinking by the Sanhedrin that he is opposed not only to the supremacy of the piece of real estate over their shoulder, but even the people of Israel. Matter of fact, that's where the book of Acts goes. Matter of fact, we should look at that. I didn't plan to go there in the book of Acts. Let's go to chapter 13. Getting ahead of ourselves here, but Paul is bringing this message. And you can think of just this as an outgrowth of the problem and the tension and the equation of what's happening with Stephen and the Sanhedrin. Verse 44, 1344. Next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And didn't we say that at the beginning of this, that we had the jealousy of the Jews, not only delivering Jesus up to the Romans to be crucified, the jealousy of the Jews after 3,000 and then 5,000 become Christians, and you have them all meeting in the back, on the temple mount, in the backyard, if you will, of the gatekeepers of the temple, the Sanhedrin. And you have this, this concern. You're leaving us behind we got to silence you. No more of this. They're going to take over the world. They're turning the world upside down. These are the phrases we read of in the book of Acts. Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. That sounds a lot like Romans chapter one. The, the idea of to the Jew first, the, we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation to those who believe to the Jew first and also the Greek. Of course, that's fulfilling the sequential order of what God had promised through Israel, through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so, of course, Messiah came, the call to repentance and faith should be given to you first, but since you thrust it aside, and why would they do that? They're blinded to the glory of God in the face of Christ. They are rejecting the means of salvation, the great high priest, the lamb of God. Well, judge for yourselves, or you've judged for yourself, then you're unworthy of eternal life, which is an interesting slam of a way to put it, right? Since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, look, We're turning to the Gentiles, for the Lord has commanded. Now he's quoting Isaiah 49. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. You see the echo of that throughout the Old Testament, which by the way, was even put into practice in the Exodus. You know, there were Egyptians that went with the Israelites out of Egypt. It's not like God was some kind of ethnocentric God who said, well, you know what? I'm not interested in anyone else. There were plenty of proselytes. There were plenty of of people that were called sojourners that went with Israel and the blessing of God was upon them. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, look at this, this is what I want for you in your quiet time this week. In your time with the Lord, I want you to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And of course, they were just being saved. New converts, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading through the whole region. That's such a great picture of the Gentiles being so thankful. In Ephesians chapter two, verses 12, let's start in verse 11, actually. Verses 11, let's just go to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter two. This is the picture. This is the feeling. This is the grateful pondering of the fact that the the, the blessing of God expanded and, and traversed the borders of Israel and Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. Remember, therefore, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, right? You're not descendants of Abraham. Called the uncircumcision, a very dismissive and pejorative way by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Oh, so many parallels there too, even with the way that that rock in Daniel 2 was a rock that was not cut by human hands. The, the kingdom of God, it's something so much deeper than what you can see in someone's pigment in their skin or their DNA or the, you know, the, the signs of their covenant promise of circumcision or anything. that Like the temple itself, the realities are the unseen things. And yet we get so fixated on the seen things. Nevertheless, you Gentiles, remember, this is what I want you to do with this week, verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth, from the nation and all the blessings of Israel. You were strangers, didn't even know the covenants of promise, these these guaranteed oaths of God about what he would do for the good of those penitent people. Having no hope, that's the problem, when you're outside and without God in the world. But now, man, if you could just catch this, this would fuel your worship this week. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verses 14 through 18, we ought to be getting along and there were problems in the early church with the Jews and Gentiles getting along, and all the things, the vestiges of all the practices of the Jews. So he addresses that. But now get to the heart of this, right? Verse 19, so many good things dovetailed together in this passage. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're not outsiders. You, you Gentiles on the other side of the planet, you fellow citizens with the saints. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Now here's this analogy, not just a family. Look, it's a, it's a structure built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This analogy now of a building. What kind of building? Well, a building where you got a cornerstone, where it's not gonna work without this person, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now look at how it shifts. Now verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, what? A temple, whoa, that structure, that, like that building. And the reality of it is us without the trappings and the pillars, and the brazen altar, and the, and, and the candelabra, and the showbread. It's like, we're it now. In whole, the whole structure joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him. Look at verse 22. You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, the reality of that unapproachable God in the glorified Christ is going to rule in the middle of the new Jerusalem but until then, like Paul, through a glass dimly, we experience the reality of relations with God through the third person of the Godhead, the Spirit now, interacting, relationally connecting with us, dwelling in us, that picture of God's presence among us. That makes you more sacred than a building that was vacated by the glory of God when Christ died on a cross and the veil was ripped. And here they are as gatekeepers of this building And a lot of things, by the way, changed between 33 AD and 70 AD and the practices and some of the extra biblical writings about the weird things that were going on and people recognizing this is not the same anymore. Well, it wasn't the same anymore because the spirit of God went from that building, at least in the representation of what God wanted to rightly do in that building with all the perversion around it. And he took his spirit and he brought it upon his people and he said, here's my temple now. And here's a couple passages for you. 1 Corinthians three, First 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 3 says, we as the church now become this temple of God. And you should feel special about that. You want to feel good about being an outsider brought in? How in are you? Here's what, what the scripture says. It's as though now you are the temple of God and here's the threat. Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. I know we're much maligned in our world, right? We're the scum of the earth as Paul put it and increasingly so in American culture today. You and I, the fundamentalist, bigoted, narrow-minded Christians Bible says those who are going after us, like in the Old Testament with Israel, you're the apple of my eye. God takes it personally when people attack the church.
0: This is Focal Point and a message called The Places of Worship for Israel from Pastor Mike Fabares. Today's message is part of a series called Gospel Lessons from the Old Testament. Now, if you missed any part of the program or if you'd like to listen again online, there's a link to today's program along with the message notes at focalpointradio.org. And right now, before we wrap up today's program, Pastor Mike has a very special invitation for you. Hi, Pastor Mike Fabara
1: is here. In the summer of 2024, I'll be teaching the Bible on a 7-day cruise to Alaska. I want you to come with me. From August the 4th through August 11th, 2024, we're going to discover the splendor of God's word while we explore the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Join us for world-class dining, daily teaching, worship. It'll be an unforgettable experience. So don't wait to book your spot. Visit
0: focalpointministries.org slash Alaska to learn more. Yeah, it's sure to be an unforgettable time with Pastor Mike, so make your plans to join us for an Alaskan cruise in August of 2024. Book your spot right away at focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Well, we hope you've benefited from Pastor Mike's faithful Bible teaching on Focal Point. And we hope you'll agree that this kind of clear, accurate biblical teaching is exactly what we need more of in today's mixed-up culture. But to keep the Focal Point ministry going strong, we need your help. Please make a generous donation when you call 888 320 or when you go online to focalpointradio.org. And to show our appreciation, we'll send you a helpful book titled The Most Misused Stories in the Bible by Eric Bargerhoff. Sort through modern-day distortions of well-known Bible stories and grasp their original meaning when you request The Most Misused Stories in the Bible. Call 888-320-5885 or go online to focalpointradio.org. Again, that's focalpointradio.org. Or if you prefer, send your donation and request for the book by mail. Our address is Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Well, I'm Dave Drouy, hoping you'll join us tomorrow for the conclusion of a message called The Places of Worship for Israel, Tuesday on Focal Point. Pastor Mike here.
1: I pray today's message will help you live out your faith with truth and love. After all, that's the kind of biblical faith that changes lives and transforms a crooked culture. But if you haven't truly surrendered your life to Christ, then I'd like to invite you to get in touch. We'd love to pray with you and help
0: you discover God's plan of salvation. Visit focalpointradio.org. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.